have the green light, our second message. We have the privilege of hearing from Mr. Matthew Steele, and it is entitled, The Power of Love. Good afternoon, everyone. I had a, a few people ask me before services uh, if I was going to sing the Huey Lewis song. Um, I actually thought about it, it might be fun to play a, you know, a short clip of it, but if you look at the lyrics, it's not really about love. So I, I, I thought better of it. It's interesting, this, I, I don't know if you've been like me, this last uh, week or so, you know, the whole world, uh, uh, news world, I should say, has been wrapped up with some pretty interesting events. Uh, you know, the testimony of the former FBI Director Comey and all the intrigue going on in politics and what was or was not said in the Oval Office between him and the President and so on. I've only followed a little bit of it. Um, wasn't particularly trying to avoid it, but it's on television in the kitchens around the office where I work. So you, you tend to see some of that going on. And then, of course, uh, for those of us that um, are foreigners, as Curtis pointed out in the previous message, uh, we were maybe looking, uh, Mark and I, at um, across the Atlantic at the elections going on in, in England and, and some of the surprising results that turned out there, bringing about a hung parliament, which basically means that no party has the absolute majority. And so now the smallest party in parliament gets to play like a big dog with the, the largest other uh, party in order to make that majority vote. It's interesting. Of course, it's also embarrassing because Prime Minister May had a majority it was a small majority, but she had a majority before she called the election. And she called it to try and make that stronger and failed. So I was thinking about these things. I was thinking about it in the context of how people interact with each other. Politics, whether it's local, national. Boy, it's really an examination of human nature, isn't it? And more often than not, the worst of human nature. We get some of the worst examples of human nature. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the British election. Oh, maybe this hung parliament would be good. It'll, it's going to force people to come together. Because some of the challenges ahead for the British people in exiting Europe, the European Union are going to require some unity. Because if they don't, there could be some very dire consequences for their economy and for, well, for the world economy as well. So I was watching this. I was thinking, what is missing from all of this? And then at the same time, I was, uh, you know, I do a lot of my thinking driving back and forth to work. I don't know if you guys do that, but, you know, especially on Highway 75 where it takes four hours to get to downtown now. And so I was thinking about my message and, and what would I bring, and, and the two concepts kind of came together. What is missing is the power of love. The power of love. And 
you don't often think about politicians being involved with love, do you? You, uh, you certainly find politicians involved with the other things. But love is not one of the, the attributes that is generally displayed, certainly on a national level. And I was also thinking about a phrase that I've heard before in, in sermons and I'd read about it in an article one time. And it's a, it's a, it's a statement made by an individual uh, by the name of Rollo May. And he was a, a psychologist. And he came up with this uh, statement. It was, it's in his book, Love and Will. And he said, when men lose the power to love, they substitute power over. When men lose the power to love, they substitute power over. And I've always struggled with that. I, I, I've seen some of the wisdom in that statement, but I've struggled with it to, to understand it fully. What does he mean? What does that really mean? That when we lose the power to love, that we substitute it with power over. I've not read all the excerpts of the book, so maybe, maybe he explains it uh, a little bit better. In fact, I've only read excerpts, so I probably ought to read the full book. But the more I look around the world, the more I look at politics and, and the different issues facing our society, the more this does make sense to me. The more I see it being played out in our environment, in the world in which we live. When we look at the world today, we're seeing more and more the consequences of men and women losing the power of love. Losing that power of love. We see it in politics, national and global. We certainly, of course, have always seen it in conflicts and war. That's probably the most obvious. We see it in the way our popular culture, not entertainment, presents love doesn't present love. It presents other things, but anything other than love. And we also see it in various social movements, and it's probably in the different social movements that have really started to, to change our society that we see this concept borne out most accurately. And I'm thinking specifically within the social movements for the uh, alternate lifestyle folks, shall I just put it that way. If you think about that, those particular group of people are championing love as they see it. It's about love and government should stay out of love and people shouldn't condemn others of how they love and so on. But what's interesting is what they have done through politics, through laws, they have substituted love for power over, over us, over anyone that disagrees. And if there isn't quite enough of a law to govern that, they'll sue you to have power over. It's interesting, isn't it? We're seeing this concept play out in some very important ways and negative ways changing our culture, changing the environment around us, wanting laws passed 
and governments to enforce those laws, to make us do something that they want us to do, make us accept or even support a particular lifestyle. But that's not the only area in which that's taking place. It's taking place across the political spectrum and across the world. Politics, as I said earlier, and watching the interactions of individuals really points out a deficiency in love between people. And again, that may sound strange to our ears that politics and politicians would have love for one another. But there was a time when politicians loved their country above all else. And, you know, whatever the, uh, the circumstances that went on with the relationships between Russia and the administration or, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire in my mind. But, but even still, I have a question about patriotism and love of country by these individuals that hold office, highest offices in our life. Where is the love of their country? Politicians at one time had that. They at one time had love and respect for those of an opposing position. But now you see them gratified at the fall of their opponent. Gloating. Enjoying it. Where's the love in that? Politicians once love, loved their the people around them, their communities that they were working for to help make those lives better. There were once politicians, as Curtis pointed out, the need for justice, to bring justice to those underprivileged, to the poor and the fatherless. I think that was in existence. I think that is disappearing very rapidly in our society. And I'm not saying that there hasn't been self-interest in politics and in politicians. There has always been self-interest in politicians. But we are a mixed bag, and we can have those failures and weaknesses, but still love our neighbors and seek to do what is good for them and help them. So we see in our society that we have lost the power to love and we are starting to substitute it with power over, over people, to make them do things that they maybe otherwise would not do. So we have two questions to ask of this. How did this happen? How did it happen that we as a society, and maybe as individuals, have lost the power to love? How did that happen? And what do we do? to get it back, because we can get it back. But we need to know how we lost it in the first place so that we can recover it. If you would turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and verse 3 is a very familiar passage. Jesus starts to give us the answers of how we have lost the power to love. It says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? 
And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no one deceives you. So pay attention. Focus. You could get deceived. So pay attention. Be careful. It's possible for you to be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ. Saying that Jesus is Christ. That he is the Savior. And will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And see that you are not troubled. For all these must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences. And earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. This is just the start. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. To kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I'm wondering if the disciples are like, okay, never mind, we don't, we don't need to know this. This wasn't what we were looking for. Who wants that? But it's a very important part of what is going to happen on this earth. He says, and many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Now, in this particular passage in, in verses eight, uh, 9 and 10, I want to ask you a question. Has Jesus changed context? Did he change context? Are the subjects of these verses different? He says, we'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. It's easy to read verses 9 and 10 together, implying that because of persecution and the death amongst the saints and what's going on against Christians, that they will eventually betray one another. I guess maybe that happens. I'm sure that has happened out of weakness and out of fear. That's certainly possible. But what's more possible in my mind is something else is taking place in society when you're down to the place where you are persecuting and killing a subset of your, of your people, of your nation. What's more possible, I think, is that the people in society will begin to betray one another, will turn on one another. Why? Because the very fabric of society is starting to break down. Friends and neighbors turning Christians into the authorities. Could you imagine that happening? If the answer is no, read history. The reason we know this will happen because it already did happen. It did happen. During the Holocaust and the build-up to the Holocaust, neighbors, families that grew up together for generations turning one another in for persecution and for death. It's already happened before. We just have to look in the pages of history or if we can find somebody that was there and experienced that. Jesus continues and says, Then many prophets 
false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. There's our answer. It's simple, and yet it's complex. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Right there is the answer. How do men lose the power to love? By lawlessness. By iniquity. By sin. Lawlessness or iniquity so great that it is everywhere. It is in everything. It is all-encompassing. By that, the love of many will grow. And the word in the Greek, when it says cold, it means as to like blow away the heat. So like chill, as you would blow on some food to cool it down. Blow that love away. Iniquity, sin, lawlessness blows love away. And we're not just talking about your run-of-the-mill sins. Okay? We're not just talking about the sins of weakness. The sins that are born out of, you know, a, you hit your finger and you say bad words. Maybe an impatience. We're not talking about those kinds of sins. We're talking about a lifestyle of lawlessness. A lifestyle and, and, and an environment, a world filled with lawlessness. Sin, iniquity, blowing out love, making it cold. This has happened to lots of people in history. We can look at the Bible and we can find lots of examples of this. It's a universal truth that lawlessness will have a deep and lasting chill on love in society. Real, deep, true love for one's neighbor, for one's community, for one's country. And we've seen plenty of these examples. The one I would like us to turn to today is in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1. The nation of Israel had become a byword for this sort of thing, an example of what happens when societies change into a lawless society. In verse 1 it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The wickedness of Judah is the title that I have on here. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider, alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why would you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faints. 
from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, closed up or bound up or soothed with ointment. This is a terrible picture. A terrible picture of a society that has completely collapsed under the weight of its own sin. And this is history for us now. This happened. When Isaiah was writing it. This was uh, uh, building into the prophecy of what was going to happen to them because of this. This really happened to Israel. And, you know, if you think about it, their society, more than any other society in the history of the world, was built on the Bible, the law of God, his word. You know, in our community in the United States, we, we look at our Judo-Christian heritage, and we say this was what our, our country was built on. And that's true. To a large extent, that's true. But nothing like these people. The very basis of their entire culture, their practices, religious practices, their clothing, in every facet of life, was, was supposed to be built and maintained on the Word of God. But they ended up in this pitiful state. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. The daughters of Zion is left as a booth and a vineyard, as a hut in the garden of cucumbers, a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left unto us a small remnant we would have been like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Who are another set of people from history that we can see lost the power of love by having complete endemic lawlessness in their society, with sin as a way of life. And it's interesting. God tried to save them, didn't he? Through Abraham. Through his intercession, fulfilling a Christ-like role. If you find just ten, will you save them? Couldn't find that many. And I wonder if that goes back to what we read earlier about the persecution and the death of the saints. Is that why there can't be any mercy? Because there isn't even ten more found amongst them. A new version of Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Again, give ear to the law. Is this a clue to how men lose the power to love? To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred Isn't that an interesting phrase? You haven't noticed that? 
I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meaning. He cannot endure as mixing sin, mixing persistent, unrepentant lifestyle choices, and then coming to church and thinking that that makes it okay. It would be better if the people just didn't do that. Don't trample my courts coming in here. You're mixing all your iniquity in here. You're not serious about repenting. Mixing sin with religious practices. It should give us pause. That should make us check ourselves. Do we do that? What good is it if I observe the Sabbath and the holy days, as Curtis pointed out, just as that Pharisee and did all these righteous things, and yet I live my life with sin and lawlessness? That's what Israel was doing. And I think that's what our society is doing. And you know, if that's what our society is doing, another great po point that Curtis pointed out, that makes an influence on us. If we're not careful, if we don't guard ourselves, that will happen to us as well. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. I am wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes. Who wants that to happen? That is chilling. That we could get ourselves to the place where we are so far removed from God that he will just ignore our, our prayer, will not look upon us. Even though you make your prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes and cease to do evil. And he's telling us to do these things. He's telling these Israelites to do these things and any nation that has called on his name to do these things. And it's in our power to do it. Not that we can make ourselves righteous, but let's make a step. Let's start working in the right direction following the law of God. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. And plead for the widow. So now God is bringing the mechanics of how this works into play. How our love is blown cold. How we lose the power to love when society falls into this lawlessness. First, there is no good, right? He said, learn to do good. So that means that there is no good going on and no good doers. No one is going around doing good. And so this gives rise to the oppressor. It always gives rise to the oppressor because there are always oppressors in society. And because there's no justice to rebuke the oppressor, this breeds hate and fear. And then it also breeds revenge, doesn't it? Self-derived justice. 
If there is no justice, I'm going to get my own justice. It's part of human nature. So then this breeds violence. It breeds violence. And then the weak and the fatherless. Well, who, who are the fatherless? Those that were made fatherless by the violence. If you look at our inner cities today and the cycle of violence that is making orphans all across the country, gang violence and widows, we're making them. Our society is making these individuals, the weak and the fatherless and the widows. And then we're building an embittered, loveless community. This is how men start to lose the power to love. Of course, it creates a vicious cycle there on end. If there is no lawful and equ equitable justice, if lawlessness is the norm, then this is how love grows cold. People become unca you know, calloused, uncaring, vengeful, and hateful. And yet our society doesn't see it. Lawlessness is disguised as liberty, freedom, my rights to live as I choose. In many ways, I wish Jefferson had wrote life, liberty, and the pursuit of righteousness, right? Because our society has taken happiness to mean pleasure, whatever feels good. Now it is good. Verse 18, he says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. You can, you can figure this out. There isn't some mystery going on. There isn't some demonic, I mean, I know there's demonic forces, but... In this instance, how this works isn't just because, you know, Satan's spreading evil around and we're just hapless victims. We bring this on ourselves. And God is saying, let's reason together. Let's look at this. Why is this happening to our cities? Why is this happening to our country? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing is that obedience word. Get our hackles up and get told what to do. But that's following God's law and rejecting lawlessness. You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And when God says that, when it says that in Scripture, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, it's a promise. It will happen. So we've come to understand this is how man, mankind loses the power to love because of lawlessness, because of endemic wickedness in society. So then we have to ask the other question. How can we come back from this? If we've lost this power to love, how do we get it back? I think, you know, we touched on it already. 
verse 10, he says, give ear to the law of God. But to, to put it maybe in a more definitive way, we need to go back to the prescription for love. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Very familiar passage to us. But if we look at this as a prescription for how we can love, how we can love again, how we can restart that cold, cold engine of love, individually and, and maybe as a people. If you look at this as a prescription, then we can use it in our life. We can use it to bring back that love and feeling, if you want to talk about it like that. He says in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of man and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal just making noise, purposeless. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long, and it is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. But rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. Hopes all things. And endures all things. If we've lost the power to love, these are the things we need to build back into our life, into our daily practices. One by one, adding them back into our how we live. Maybe even replacing some other things that have been drawing us away from that love. So, are we unkind? Do we live our life being unkind? I'm not talking about out of weakness, we say a hurtful word. But is, is our general disposition toward kindness or unkindness? Are we hurtful to others? Do we demean others? It's an extension of what Curtis was talking about. Do we prefer those folks as opposed to those folks? That is not kind. So that's unkindness. So are we being kind? Do we question people's character or their intelligence? Do we diminish others in work or in school? And that's two environments that absolutely are hard to live in, isn't it? In school and then. For those of you that are still in school, I'm sorry, when you get to work, it's not much better. And it's easy to get drawn in, isn't it, the gossip. Did you, did you hear what that idiot said the other day? And you're already down the road, aren't you? No. Which idiot? Oh, no. It's so easy to get drawn in. And, you know, we might find excuses. Well, I'm just being honest with you. No. 
Honesty doesn't mean being unkind. We can be kind in our honesty. Love is kind. And when we're not kind, I wonder it's because we've moved on and we're envious. Because that comes next. Right? Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Well, what do you know? That's why we were unkind. Jealous of what others have. And maybe we don't. Do we parade ourselves around, though? Are we puffed up? Look at me in my position. You know, in my nice suit. Which had a spider running on it earlier. And uh, Fran tried to come to my rescue. So at some point, if I start jiggling around, you, I found the spider. Do we parade ourselves around? Is it important for us to be associated with the right people and be puffed up? If we want to restore the power to love, we need to get over ourselves and get back to humility, to put others first, to seek the benefit of others. I can do this and it will help me, but if I take that same time or that resource, I can put it towards somebody else. Make that choice first, even if you don't want to. That's how we start to build back the power to love. We need to be not so thin-skinned. We need to endure and not just react, because that plain reaction leads to sin. It's just so easy for us to do. As I mentioned, I see so much of this at work and not always just on the TV. And it's easy to get drawn into. We need to not think evil of others and not think of doing evil. We find ourselves in that frame of mind and then go back. Go back to the beginning of verse 5. Read the prescription again. And try and put into practice those things. That grow love, that heat up love into a passion for those around us for all around us, regardless of their station. Now for the hard part, because that was all easy, right? The hard part is this. We need to stop rejoicing in iniquity. I don't rejoice in iniquity. Are you sure? Are you sure you don't rejoice in iniquity? What, what, would, what does that look like to you? One of the thing, when I was thinking about this, one of the things I thought was, you know, a bunch of people on the other side of the world celebrating when another bunch of people on the other side of the world are, are blown up by a terrorist bomb or something. You know, ha-ha, they got theirs. They got what was coming to them. And that is rejoicing in iniquity, for sure. But the subtle things that affect us are not that way, are they? I've never watched The Godfather, any of those. Don't quote the lines. It's iniquity, isn't it? And it's the celebration of lawlessness. These guys live outside of the law. And our society is just like, oh, they're just fantastic stories. You know? Isn't it interesting how quickly and easily we can get drawn in 
to movies and books and celebrate iniquity, violence, murder, extortion. I glorify it for glorifying violence's sake. Perhaps, perhaps maybe it's lust and sex and movies and novels and pornography easily drawn into those areas too. It's everywhere. And then perhaps we take pleasure in the downfall of others. Rejoice that that politician, you know, he got found out, he got his, he got his comeuppance. Instead of being mournful and sorrowful that he got himself in that situation in the first place, and that he brought his office into disrepute. We can so easily celebrate iniquity. We have to recognize that we're capable of celebrating iniquity and rejoicing in it, finding pleasure in it, and maybe even deriving benefit from it. Instead of those lawless obsessions, we should endeavor to replace each one with truth. Find an avenue to replace that with truth. How, how God's law is a helper to us, an aid and a comfort to us in our lives. And I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone else. To remember, to pause and stop and remember this passage before I engage in that gossip or celebrating the downfall of someone or letting my eyes linger too long on something. Not rejoicing in iniquity. And add to all of this patience, bearing all things, believing all good things of God, trusting in his promises to us, hoping and enduring in the place, in place of doubting and surrender. You know, maybe, maybe this life's too hard. Maybe this Christian walk is just not worth it. Maybe it's not really going to happen. You can get into those situations. Find yourself there. Go to this passage. Go to 1 Corinthians 13 and read of that love that we are to have. And that the love that God has for us. Paul says, love never fails. Love never fails. Think about that in your own life. People fail. People can fail. But love never fails. And we have all experienced that kind of love if we stop and remember. Whether it's from our friends, from our parents, our siblings, from strangers, certainly from God. He says, but where there are prophecies, where there are telling forth of things, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, 
but then I shall know just as I am known. And you know, for the longest time I used to think that I knew what Paul was talking about here. That, that in these last few verses, that I knew what he was getting at. And then I realized I was missing something, a big point. I've never seen it before. Maybe you've seen it. But as Paul weaves his way through this, through his, his chapter here, he's weaving through the attributes of love. And then he starts to juxtapose the properties of love and faith and hope with prophecy, with speech, and with knowledge. And he's, he's putting them side by side as a comparison. And he's saying that all this talk, all this prophesying, all this speech, all this language of men, and all the knowledge that we have is going to go away. But the three others don't, right? That all of those prophecies and that all of the, the speech and the knowledge and that communication is a shadow of the real knowledge that will be revealed in this, of the real prophecies that we'll finally understand. That's how it was going to work out. Okay, now we get it. And the real knowledge that God has in store when we arrive in the kingdom. But he doesn't say that about faith, about hope, or what? Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say that those things go away. And there's a very special reason why. Because he says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Knowledge and speech, prophesying, all that we've, we see through a glass darkly with, all these childish thoughts that we have. We're still children in this analogy. You know, he, he drew the analogy that he was once a child and he became a man. At some point, we will cease to be children and we will become the spiritual version of in the kingdom of God. We are childish in our thoughts and in our tongues. We've yet to grow up. We've yet to put, on, put those childish things away. For now, we do see through a glass darkly. But that's not the case with love. Isn't that interesting? He's not saying that's the, that's the case with love. This world, this life, this environment exists for us to perfect these three principles, faith, hope, and love. That's why we're still here, right? Otherwise, we believe, we've been baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit. What's all this hanging around for? Let's move on up or over there, right? And join Jesus in the air and let's be done with all of this. And yet, this is why we're still here. Think about it. How much faith can you learn when you're in the kingdom of God? I'm not saying you won't learn any, but compared to here, how much faith does it take to believe in the kingdom of God when you're there? It's here that we learn to have faith. 
It's here that we learn to have that endurance of faith and that persistence of faith and that we will not give up. It's here. Hope. Same is true for hope. How could hope be perfected in a world of peace and safety in the kingdom of God? We have everything we hoped for. It's here that we have to learn to persist in our hope, to have hope for our salvation, to have hope for the future that God will bring. And our hope is matured by our endurance and in love. The greatest and most enduring of all is love. Again, how could we love in the full, mature sense, fullest mature sense in a world free of sin and ugliness? Because that's really when love kicks in, isn't it? It's easy to love somebody that's lovable. Right? It's easy to love your dog with the big sad eyes and, and they just, they're so pettable and they're, they just want to be with you. But when they get into the trash and you find it at 6 o'clock in the morning, like today, they're not so easy to love. And people are like that. Sometimes we can be really lovable, but most We're hard to love. We can be really hard to love. And so by staying here for a little while, we are perfecting love if we don't let it blow cold. We stay in love with one another. Apparently, the only place in the universe where we can really learn these principles and be fully matured is right here on dangerous, smelly, messed up planet Earth. And so these three are perfected here. Our knowledge and our speech and all that other stuff, that'll get perfected in the kingdom of God. I don't know if you'd ever seen that before, but I think that's so encouraging, so powerful. And we have the perfect examples, don't we? This has been in front of us all the time. This isn't anything new. In John 3 and verse 16, what, what does it say? You can all quote that, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He so loved us. When we are unlovable, before he brought about our salvation, he loved us before he could even start to make us lovable. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man one will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Absolute, perfect image of love. And he lived here with us. And he endured this world with us. And he did not let his love grow cold. Not at all. 
And in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for the love, of, for love is of God. And everyone who is, loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that's probably the easiest kind of love to have is for one another in here. But who did Jesus die for? The world. So we must love everyone in the world. Everyone. And find an opportunity to share God's love with anyone that will listen. This is the size and the depth of God's love. And that's the size and the depth of love he wants us to have. And that's why he's leaving us here. This is our training ground where we learn to, to have that kind of love for one another when we are at our most unlovable. We must not allow ourselves to lose the power to love. Even if it's happening in society around us, we have to stay the course. We have to resist and stay in that stubborn love for even those that would persecute us. But if we do fall back, if we do let our love grow cold, we have a prescription that we can apply to our life and bring back that love. And reincorporate that love back again into each one of us. And Christ is here in us helping us, guiding us. May these three remain and prosper in you. Faith, hope, and most of all,